Okay, my friends, if you got a Bible, you can start finding 2 Timothy chapter 4. That's in the New Testament towards the end. It's a letter that St. Paul wrote to a young disciple in the Lord named Timothy. We're going to get to that in just a second. So here's where we're at. If you haven't been with us for the last three weeks, we've been walking through a sermon series called Sacred Life. And the big idea has been looking at and exploring the invitations of Jesus in the different phases of life. We started this thing out by talking about how Jesus wants to meet people in unique and profound ways when you're in your teenage years, your 20s, and your early 30s. We talked about Jesus coming to us in those years of our life and inviting us to build our lives on the rock that is Jesus, to sell everything and have the treasure, to not half-step, to not just add Jesus to your other loves and priorities, but to go all in as a follower of Jesus, to cry out from the bottom of your heart, I'm your bow, O Lord, bend me lest I rot. Like, I don't wanna waste my life. I want my life to be about Jesus. Then last week we got together and talked about the invitations of Jesus in the long, difficult years of middle life as your responsibilities stack up and as the losses accumulate and as you're under the yoke and the pressure of all the demands, we talked about how Jesus wants to draw near to you and invite you to deeper communion in middle life. Well, today we get to end this series by talking about the end of our lives, the end of our lives. And we could talk about the last quarter of our lives in general, and that would be helpful. But today we've decided that in particular, we're going to talk about the two-minute warning of our lives. Not all of old age, but we're going to talk about in particular the end of life. And the reason this is so important is because if you hear the invitation of Jesus at the end of your life, If you know what it really means to die in faith and to die well, not only will that inform the golden years of your life or old age, but that'll actually equip you and empower you no matter how old you are to live a beautiful life, to live a life to the glory of God and to give your death away for the blessing and benefit of your community. So today, with that in mind, we're gonna look at the Apostle Paul. And in a lot of ways, the Apostle Paul sums up those three phases of discipleship. When Jesus met Paul as a young man, full of fire and passion and ambition, the heart of Paul responded to Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Paul basically, in essence, with his life, said, I'm your bow, O Lord, bend me lest I rot. I don't want to be about my agenda or my kingdom. Paul wanted to be about Jesus. Then Paul, throughout his travels, in the midst of church planting, moved into middle life. We've seen, if you've studied scripture, that Paul in middle life, during the most generous and productive years of your life, uh, Paul spent about 30 plus years giving his life away for the blessings of others. He trained leaders. He planted churches. He raised funds for the poor. He wrote prolifically. He gave his life away in middle life. And we could rightly say that the prayer of Paul in middle life was, I'm your bow, Lord, bend me, but don't overbend me lest I break. Paul knows what it's like to be under the weight and responsibilities of middle life. In fact, he said things like, I have the daily anxiety for all the churches. Meaning like, He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be overwhelmed with your responsibility for the people that you love. And today we get to look at the end of Paul's life. We get to look at Paul, the old man. We get to look at a guy who has lived fully for Jesus and he's given everything away almost, almost. 
Because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul has one more thing to give away, and that's his very breath. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is preparing himself, and he's preparing his son in the Lord, Timothy, for Paul's departure from this world. And at the end of Paul's life, in a prison cell, most likely in Rome, the activity of Paul's life is over. He's no longer traveling. He's no longer the busy man going from town to town to town, training leaders and planting churches. He's in prison and his journeys have ceased except for his final journey. And this is really important for you and for me because though you may not follow in Paul's footsteps in being a a church planter and a world traveler planting churches all over the planet, everybody has to follow in Paul's footsteps at the end of your life. Everybody has to make the last trip. Nobody is gonna get out of this life alive. And so Paul's words to Timothy are really profound. They're really helpful, especially in a culture like ours, because we live in a culture that worships youth. We do everything we can to hold up youth as the ideal of what it means to be a human being. We're terrified of aging. We're terrified of our bodies changing. We're terrified of retirement in our culture. In a culture like ours, we do anything possible to avoid thinking about death. We outsource death to everybody else. We hardly ever deal with our own dead. Why? Well, we're terrified of thinking of dying. We'll talk about anything but death. We'll go out of our way. We'll go out of our way to be distracted enough to not have the existential questions of death run a good day. We live in a culture that's obsessed with activity, right? We love productivity. We love successful people. We, in our culture, want life to look like this unbroken chain of ascent where you just go from success to success to success. We're not a culture that knows what to do with the seasons of life where we're no longer active. We live in a culture where perhaps the most marginalized people in America are the elderly. We push them to the edges of our family. We push them to the edges of our society. So we don't just need, as Americans, middle-aged Paul and his unbroken chain of church planting success. We don't just need the Apostle Paul giving his activity away for the church. We need old Paul as well. We need Paul with a gray hair, with a gray head, and a bent body carrying in his body the marks of his sufferings for Jesus, moving from activity to presence in his final days. He no longer has busyness to give away, but you know what he has? He has wisdom. He has presence. And ultimately, he has his death, which he's going to offer to Jesus and offer for the good of his community. So today we get to sit with Timothy at the feet of Paul the old man. And we get to learn from Paul the old man what it means to die well, because if you learn what it means to die well, you'll learn what it means to live well. With Paul, we get to come today to do something we don't do very well as Americans. We get to sit in the house of mourning to gain wisdom. Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse two says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Americans don't believe that. We do everything we can to avoid the place of mourning and to stay at the party. Yet, this is the end of all mankind, it tells us, and the living 
must lay it to heart. Meaning there's things you learn at a funeral. There's things you learn at the end of life and by meditating on the end of life that you can't learn at a cookout. And since there's a common end for all of us, since death is the great equalizer, since you can't outrun death's grip and you can't outearn death and you can't work out enough to undo death and the reality of what's coming for you, it does well for a human soul to think about what it means to die so that you can think about what it means to really live. Today, we're gonna let the Apostle Paul teach us through his words to Timothy, how to lay to heart the 90th Psalm, which says, let us number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And that's my prayer for you and for me as a young church that's blessed with some wonderful, amazing people in their 70s and 80s that we love and cherish, that we desperately need as a community. But as a church that's mostly young, today we need to learn to number our days. We need to learn to think of the end so that we can live well at the beginning and the middle. And so with this in mind, at the end of Paul's life, he's Jesus's bow and he's about to be bent one more time and he's about to break. And he says these words to his young friend, Timothy, starting in verse six of chapter four. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Today, as Paul prepares his friend Timothy for his impending departure, there's some things that we need to take from this text. Six things about the end of life that we can learn from the Apostle Paul. First and foremost, for Paul, death is a departure. It's a departure. Look at the word that he chooses at the end of verse six. The time of my departure has come. For the materialist, we would say, the time of my end has come. Live my life and now I'm about to die and I can't take anything with me, including myself. I'm about to move into the end of all things upon death. The nihilist takes it a step further. The nihilist says, life is meaningless and now nothingness has finally cut up with me. I'm gonna cease to exist like all things. I'm gonna go back into the grounds and the best I can hope for is that my body turns back into the natural cycles of this planet and maybe it'll turn into corn and feed somebody. For the agnostic, there's a shred of hope. The time of my departure has come or my end and maybe there's a chance, a slim chance that somehow we go on. Maybe we become a part of the universe or maybe there's an afterlife. But Paul's different than any of those options. Paul's seen something that's profoundly and uniquely Christian in Jesus. What Paul has experienced is that Jesus Christ came to this planet to set slaves free. We were slaves not just to sin, but we were also slaves to death. 
And the tyranny of death has reigned over humanity with such an iron grip that no matter what you do, death is the impending doom that makes us feel like nothing ultimately matters. And that's why we don't think about death. But Paul knows something about death and dying. He knows that Jesus upon his death actually confronts death in his dying that Jesus in his resurrection defeats death and that Jesus will ultimately at the end of history kill death itself. Paul knows something that we need to know if we're gonna die well, because of Jesus, death doesn't get the last word. Death doesn't have the final say. Death doesn't have the authority. Death is an enemy that's still present, but an enemy that's been defeated and that's on the clock to be completely and forever overthrown. Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 and 15 say this, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's you and me, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death, he might destroy the one that has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver, that's rescue language, that's exodus language, and deliver, and deliver, those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Here's what Paul's saying, and it's so profound. It's a shift when it comes to the end of life. What he's saying is this, life has been wonderful. It's been lived for the glory of God, but it's been a sojourn. I've been in exile and death for me is a departure to go back to the country that I was made for to go back to the land that my soul longs for, to the place that Jesus is from. Paul is saying for him, death means that his separation from his deepest love is about to be over. And he's about to see Jesus face to face. He's about to experience the things that he's longed for in the depth of his being to be totally and completely free from sin and to actually stand in the presence of his beloved. Death doesn't win. Death does not get the last word for Paul. Death is a departure from this life into a fuller and richer way of living. St. Athanasius was a great Christian writer early in the history of the church. He's a great place to start if you want to read some people early on in ancient church history. He's accessible and brilliant. And he has this great little book called In the Un on the incarnation. And Athanasius wrote this. I think about these words every time I do a funeral. He wrote, death has become like a tyrant who has been completely conquered by the legitimate monarch. Bound hand and foot, the passers-by sneer at him, hitting him and abusing him, no longer afraid of his cruelty and rage because of the ruler who has conquered him, so has death been conquered and branded by the Savior on the cross. Jesus died to defeat death. Death is not the end. In addition to that, secondly, for Paul, death is an, is an offering of worship. Death is an offering of worship. Look at the beginning of verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Where is he talking about? Where does this language come from? Well, to say that he's being poured out as a drink offering is reaching back into Old Testament worship language. As the people of God, the worshipers of Yahweh would gather together in worship, they would have burnt offerings and sacrifices as they worship God, but they would also practice this thing called drink offering. 
And in a drink offering, they would take fine wine and they would pour that wine on the ground as an act of worship and adoration, loving and serving Yahweh. And what Paul says in this text is really profound. What he's saying is, for him, death is going to be this last act of worship that's like a drink offering where the wine has been aged to perfection and it's prepared now to be lavishly poured on the ground as an act of worship. God does this thing with the Apostle Paul that he does with all saints that follow Jesus and age he mellows Paul's soul like fine wine. Paul's been pressed and he's been crushed and he's been driven and he's had all of these things in life that happen to anybody that sees old age take place. He's lost a lot and he suffered a lot, but in the midst of all that, his soul within him has not deteriorated, though his body has fallen apart. His soul is like aged wine. Now, I'm not really a wine expert, in fact, I find that I typically am looking for a wine that's kind of like an IPA. Um, <laughs> but I respect wine experts. And I got a buddy in South Africa that Nancy and I got to stay with a few years back that loves wine. He's got this great wine cellar. And we were at his house. He cooked steaks for us. And he went to his cellar and he broke out a 40 plus year old bottle of wine. And he said, as he, as he corked that wine, he said, listen, you never know. Sometimes the wine turns with age and sometimes, sometimes you're in for a rare treat. He poured us a few glasses of wine and we picked it up and I've never smelled wine so deep and so rich. I've never tasted wine that good, that complex, that full of body. What Paul is saying is that for him, death has been the culmination of a soul that's been formed to love Jesus, a soul that's been formed to honor Jesus. And even though his body is deteriorating, he's wasting away day by day on the outside, he would write. On the inside, he's being renewed and his soul is like fine wine. And death for Paul is this final lavish act of worship where he says, okay, Jesus, pour me out. I'm your bow, bend me. And if I break, I break. It's his last act of fidelity. And we're a young church for the most part, which means most of the funerals that we've done over the years have been unexpected deaths. We've buried a lot of babies in our church. We've buried a lot of teenagers. We've buried a lot of suicides. Rarely have we had the privilege of walking with godly older saints as their soul has been mellowed and as they prepare to be poured out. But I have experienced it. My friend Debbie went to go be with Jesus after a year of living with her family and battling lung cancer. And I had the profound honor of regularly taking her the Eucharist as she was preparing to pass, the body and the blood of Jesus. And what was so fascinating about Debbie was to see as her body wasted away, her faith and her love for Jesus grow. And to see the way that the drink offering that she was in worship for Jesus was not just an act of worship for God, but it was giving her death away for her family as they got to see her rooted and grounded in Jesus and growing in her faith and in her confidence that the gospel is real. We want to be a church that prepares ourselves 
for the last chapter of life to culminate in a pouring out of our lives like a drink offering for Jesus. We want to be people whose souls age well for the glory of God. In addition to this, thirdly, death requires a life of preparation. Death requires a life of preparation. Look at verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Notice that Paul doesn't reflect back on his life and use cute metaphors. He doesn't say, life's a picnic, right? He doesn't ponder back and say, you know what life's really like? It's like a cruise. It's like an all-inclusive resort. No, this is struggle language. Paul says life was like a fist fight. Life was like a marathon that pushed him to the edge of breaking. And what he's pointing to in this is so needed. He says, victory is at hand, but first is the fight. The finish line's in sight. I can see it, but first comes the race. Faith is about to become sight, but first comes perseverance, holding on to Jesus when you want to despair. In our church, we use the language of story a lot because we think it's biblical and right. And we tell people in our church all the time that your life's a story and your story has an author and there's a bigger story to the whole world, which is the story of Jesus. And that's language that we don't just do and use because we think it's hip and popular. It's language that we think helps frame up what it means to be a human being that's in your timeline. But here's the challenge in our cultural moment. A lot of us are trying to live stories that aren't really good stories. We want to live stories without struggle. We want to live stories without loss. We want to live stories without conflict and without pain. And the reality is this, there's no great story without those things. If your life is a beautiful story and there's an author that's worth his salt that's telling it, your life is not going to look like a sunny day for 80 years. Your life is going to have valleys and it's going to have peaks and it's going to have loss if God is the author of the entire universe and he's the author of your story, don't expect that he's going to tell anything short of a good story with your life. And this is what Paul is pointing out with this struggle language. So there's two questions I want to ask you. Question, how do you prepare to die? First answer, you really live. What Paul is saying is that this life that was like a fist fight and the way that he fought in this life and this life that was like a race, and now we can see the finish line, this race that he had to push himself on and endure on. What Paul is saying, if you really want to die well, the secret to dying well is living well. It's pouring your life out. It's giving your life away. Paul has left nothing undone. He's left nothing in his tank at the end of his life. There's no seed he hasn't planted. There's nothing that he was assigned to do that's been left undone. Paul has been all in and he's run hard for his 30 plus years of following Jesus. And now he's totally spent and he's at the finish line and he's about to cross. This for us is so unbelievably important. Let me read to you from Indy Wilson that wrote a great book called Death by Living. He writes this, if life is a story, how should we then live? It isn't complicated, it's just hard. Take up your life and follow him. Face trouble, pursue it, climb it. 
Smile at its roar like a tree planted by cool water, even when your branches groan. When your golden leaves are stripped and the frost bites deep, even when your grip on earth is torn loose and you fall among morning saplings, shall we die for ourselves or die for others? For most of us, the question is rarely posed in our final mortal moment, although there is glory when it is. Death is the finish line of this preliminary race. Shall we cross the finish line for ourselves or for others? The choice isn't waiting for us down the track. The choice is now. Death is now. The choice is here. Lay down your life. Your heartbeats cannot be hoarded. Your reservoir of breath is draining away. You have hands, blister them while you can. You have bones, make them strain. They can carry nothing in the grave. You have lungs, let them spill with laughter. With an average life expectancy of 78.2 years in the U.S., subtracting eight hours a day for sleep, I have around 250,000 conscious hours remaining in me in which I could be smiling or scowling, rejoicing in my life, in this race, in this story, or moaning and complaining about my troubles. I could be giving my fingers, my back, my mind, my words, my breath to my wife and my children, my neighbors, or I can grasp the vapor and the vanity for myself, dragging my feet, afraid to die, and therefore afraid to live. And like Adam, I will still die in the end. Living is the same thing as dying. Living well is the same thing as dying for others. So here's what I would ask you. What are you hoarding your life for? What are you saving it for? What are you saving your time for and your talent for and your treasure for? You've been given this feast. You've been given the gift of life and there's grace stacked upon grace, stacked upon grace. And the way that you prepare to cross the finish line is by running this race like Jesus and giving it all away. You can't take it with you. You can't save energy for the last day. If God's given you a spouse, lay down your life, pour it out for them. If God's given you kids, don't cling to them in fear. Hold them with open hands and pour into them all you've got. Don't let your church community be a Midwestern social club that's just about your religious felt needs where you come and take a sermon here and there. Give your life away. Love your city. Love your neighbors. Love your spouse. Follow Jesus. This is the kind of living that prepares you for dying. Question, how do you die well? Answer, practice makes perfect, so start dying often. That's what Paul would tell you. How do you, how do you endure having an executioner walk up to you with a sword drawn to cut off your head? How do you face that and not freak out? Because that's how Paul most likely died. We know that from church history. He probably got his head chopped off in Rome. How do you endure that? How do you face that? Well, Paul endured that because that wasn't the first time he ever faced death. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, that he dies every day. Jesus put it like this in Matthew 16, 25. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Here's the big idea. Jesus, our master, carried a cross. And to follow our master is to actually practice dying daily until your final death, the last hurdle to be crossed, is faced and you're prepared to face it. Dying daily is following Jesus. It's repenting every day. It's loving others and honoring others more than you honor yourself. It's pushing others forward instead of clinging to them and trying to make them what you want them to be. It's being your kid's launch pad and sending them into the world, not being a helicopter parent that tries to control them so that you feel better. How do you die well? You start dying early and often. (laughs) You die for your church. You die for your neighbors. You die for your spouse. You die for your kids. You take up the cross and follow Jesus. And by God's grace on the last day, if God lets you see ripe old age, you'll be so practiced at dying that the final time you die will not be an obstacle that you can't overcome by God's grace. You get out of the center of your life and you give it all away. Fourthly, death requires grace. It requires grace. Look at verse eight. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Theologians argue about what this crown of righteousness means. Some argue that the crown of righteousness is the sinless state of a Christian once he's in heaven and sees Jesus. That Paul is saying the crown of righteousness is going to be the righteousness that Paul's going to exist in when sin is totally purged from him and there's no sin left. Others have argued that this crown of righteousness is the award that Paul's going to get for his perseverance in following Jesus to the very end. I don't think we really know, but here's what we do know. The crown of righteousness is rooted and grounded in the gift of God's grace in Jesus. It's from the work of Jesus to cover Paul's sin, to cover his failings, his shortcomings, to be strength in his weakness. See, look at this verse. It says that on that day, the crown of righteousness is going to come from whom? The righteous judge. Now, I don't, I don't know what you know about God, But if you've studied the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures of the New Testament, here's what you're going to find. That God is not just good, he's terrifying in his holiness. He's like burning white hot goodness to such a degree that any badness can't be accepted or tolerated in his presence. He's not cute. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it. God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror. The thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. He's our only possible ally and we've made ourselves his enemies. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They're still only playing games with religion. Goodness is either great is either the great safety or the great danger according to the way that you react to it. And we have reacted the wrong way. 
Meaning like, here's what Paul's about to experience. He's about to stand before the God that authored him, the God that has no sin, the God that's radiant holiness, the God that created everything out of nothing. And here's what Paul's expectation is. He's going to be awarded. What? Does Paul not know his shortcomings? Paul was accomplice to Stephen's murder. Paul put moms in jail, took them away from their babies and put them in jail. Paul was one of the most prideful, arrogant, religious people that's ever lived on the face of the planet. He was was a terrorist. And he's going to stand before the righteous judge and receive a crown of righteousness? Here's what he knows. You're not ready to die until you know what grace is. Grace is the gift of God in Jesus. It's that your sin, past, present, and future, was paid for by Jesus. It's that Jesus' fullness, his perfect goodness, gets counted as yours. You get clothed in Jesus. So Paul is not in this text boasting that he's going to stand before God and say, resume, let me in. What he's banking on is that Jesus accomplished everything that Paul has fallen short in. This is grace. And this is a big deal because I feel like a lot of my job is just trying to help you prepare for your death. And I don't say that to try to be funny or cute. Like, as I'm preaching, that's what I'm thinking about. As I'm praying for you, that's what I'm thinking about. As we're writing sermon series, as we're thinking about community groups, like all of it can boil down to, we want to prepare you for your death. Because here's the crazy thing. If you're prepared for your death, you're prepared for your life. And the thing you need more than anything else to be prepared for your death is to be so formed by God's grace and so confident in God's grace that you're going to stand before that holy God and you're going to boast in Jesus. And you're going to know that you're going to be accepted because of Jesus. So let me ask you, do you know that grace? If you don't yet know that grace, you're not ready for that day. And if you know that grace a little bit, your job between now and that day is to train in the grace of God until you know it and you believe it and you're resting in it because it's that grace that helps root you and ground you at the end. Fifthly, Paul's death moves him to dependence. Dependence and not just dependence on God. Look at verse nine. To Timothy, he says, do your best to come to me soon. What is that? Well, here's what's happening. If you were a Roman prisoner, you were totally and completely dependent on the charity of your friends and family for basic necessities, for your food, for your medicine, for your clothes. What Paul is saying to Timothy is he's locked up in jail. Hey, Timothy, if you don't show up and meet these basic human needs I've got, I'm going to be in real trouble here. This is Paul, the leader This is Paul, the brilliant intellectual that wrote the book of Romans. This is Paul, the guy that God used to work crazy miracles. This is Paul, the church planter. Paul, the capital A apostle of the church of Jesus. And you know what happens at the very end? He's reduced to dependence on a young man who was probably in his 20s that he had discipled. And this is really relevant because most of us at the end of our lives are gonna be reduced to that kind of dependence. We're going to need family and hospice workers, doctors and nurses, 
to clean our bodies, to feed us, to keep us warm. This is one of the most terrifying things about death for most of us. The two things about death that haunt me, one is to be parted from my wife. Love her. She's been with me since I was in seventh grade. I I don't know life without her. And almost equally to that fear that I have of death is the idea of having no strength to offer. To have to be clothed and cleaned. Death imposes such indignity on us, doesn't it? But here's what we see. That indignity, that dependence at the end is actually a hidden grace or a severe mercy from God because the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom. Because in all the other kingdoms of the world, it says it's the strong that succeed. It's the big that make it. But the kingdom of Jesus is an upside down kingdom where the way down is actually the way up. And here's what God seems to do for most of his saints. For most of his saints, he seems to take them all the way down at the end before he takes them all the way up. The reducing of our lives, our mental capacities, our finances, our relationships, the ailing of our bodies, eventually even the basic functions that we take for granted, all of these things seem to get stripped away at the end and it's easy to raise a fist at God or to be terrified terrified of this end. But here's the thing that scripture would say, our savior endured these indignities upon his death. Did you know that Jesus most likely lost control of his bowels on the cross? He did. Don't you see Jesus on the cross saying, I thirst? He couldn't grab a drink of water for himself. And what came on the other side of that indignity, that humiliation, nothing short of glory, vindication, resurrection. And if your faith is in Jesus, whatever the indignities are that you're currently facing or that you will face at the end, on the other side of those indignities is the guarantee of your glorification. Then the resurrection of Jesus, you will be raised as well. And this is really good news and it's really important to take to heart. Job chapter one, verses 20 through 22 It's a great book that I think more young people should read. Says this, Then Job arose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and he worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Naked I came, and naked I'll return. Dying in dependence doesn't mean that the last word on your life is that suffering and indignity. 
for those in Christ, dying in dependence is a part of the Father's hand to plant you like a seed in the ground that dies so that what grows is eternal and unmatched and magnificent. And I'll end with the last thought, number six. Demas isn't prepared to live or die. Look what Paul says, because it's the contrast to where Paul's at. Verse 10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas, in love with this present world. Demas is not prepared to live because he's not prepared to die because everything in this world, Demas is clutching it like this. Demas's treasure in this world, his ultimate comforts in this world, his greatest delight is in this world. And Demas is a lot of us. And Demas is in all of us. We hold on to our families and to our health as our ultimate treasure. We, we hold on to money like it's the ultimate treasure. We, we hold on to food and drink and pleasure like it's our ultimate treasure. And those things are all great. They're all good. They're all gifts. But Demas is in love with it all. Meaning his love for Jesus is pale in comparison to his love for all these things that he's clutching. Paul has enjoyed many things in this world. Relationships food, drink, friendship. The difference between Paul and Demas is that Paul is holding all those things that God gives as gifts with open hands and he's holding on to Jesus tightly. The only way to die well is to hold everything with open hands except Jesus and to hold him really, really tightly. My prayer is that by God's grace, you and me would be formed over however many years God gives us to be less like Demas and more like Paul. So, I want to pray for you. I want to pray in whatever stage of life that you're in that you would not run from here a moment in the house of mourning thinking about the end to the house of feasting without doing business with the living God. 